0: guys, whenever you see a white horse show up in a movie or a television program, you know something epic is about to happen. You know, the white horse, like for example, Lord of the Rings in that trilogy. I mean, Gandalf, he starts uh, whistling for Shadowfax, which is the white horse. And then he does this, that white horse comes roaring into the Uh, into the scene and it's just this amazing moment here he comes he's coming to the rescue he's going to help them to achieve some victory it's going to be epic it's going to be amazing and they're all watching it's like what's going to happen now and this horse comes to the rescue typically the hero rides the horse and in this one, the only one who's allowed to ride the horse or who's able to ride the horse is Gandalf, the amazing hero in this Lord of the Rings epic uh, trilogy. Guys, it, it is just awesome. And, and this has become a kind of a stock feature and it goes back not just to this movie, but let's look at a few other ones, all right? Uh, there, there's all sorts, the white horse shows up. You got, you got Snow White, you got all these different movies, the Lone Ranger. Here's Snow White again, you know, John Wayne. I mean, on and on it goes. The white horse, it's the hero comes in to save the day. He's going to defeat the bad guys. And he comes, the good guy comes on a white horse, typically. Guys, this, this imagery of the white horse, the conquering hero coming on the white horse, is, goes back to ancient times. I mean, th- th- this goes back to... Uh, Roman times to Greek times, uh, ancient Greece. And it's just been a part of our culture for uh, and, and numerous cultures for millennia. And it's interesting, as we work our way through the book of Revelation, that we come to chapter 19, and we're just about at the climactic moment of the, uh, the book of Revelation, guess what? A white horse shows up a rider on a white horse shows up. Uh, Guys, last weekend, Pastor Brandon uh, talked about uh, the church celebrating. The Hallelujah Chorus, because Jesus reigns and and everyone sits down to have this incredible uh, wedding supper of the Lamb to uh, celebrate the victory that Jesus brings. But as that is going on, or as that's about to happen, and this heavenly symbol, image, vision is given to the Apostle John, he relates to us, uh, chapter 19 then shifts and goes to a different image, a very, very, very different scene. And remember, guys, as we go through the book of Revelation, these are symbols. They, they, they don't always represent exact corresponding to real, actual events and the way it's going to actually occur. And they're not necessarily chronological. But we do get a vision, and it's of Jesus on a white horse. Let's look at it together. Chapter 19 of Revelation, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened. <laughs> John looks up and he sees this epic vision, and there was a white horse. Everybody knows that's what it symbolizes, a white horse, victory, conquering. Uh, it's going to be amazing. And its rider is called Faithful and True. Uh, It's obviously Jesus Christ, you'll see as this goes on. But he gets a name here, he gets a title, Faithful and True. In other words, he's going to come, and whatever he does here is going to be faithful to the character of God. It's going to be true to his word. It's going to be just, it's going to be fair, it's going to be righteous, it's going to be good. The white horse, the commanding general, it's really a warrior image here, guys. Uh, This is what the Roman... Uh, riders would often come in. We actually saw earlier in the book of Revelation a, a rider on a white horse, but that was, that, was, uh, that was also doing conquest, but it was in bringing hardship to the earth. This one comes in a different way, and it's Jesus Christ, the rider of the horse. And it says, he's called faithful and true, and with justice, he judges and makes war. Jesus comes onto the scene And he is going to set the matter straight. He's going to right all the wrongs that have been done. He will deal now with evil in the last, last days. This will be, as he makes war, a perfectly just war. It says, with justice he judges. This is not unfair. This is completely, reliably righteous, good, true, and noble. Uh, so this image here is the rider on the white horse. Uh, it symbolizes the purity. That's it, what it's meant. It's the supremacy, it's the supreme leader. It's noble. There's something good about the rider on the white horse. Victorious. He is a conqueror. He will win the day. Now look, at the, it goes on to tell us more about the rider, Jesus. His eyes were like a fiery flame. That that is, he sees all, He, he sees it with justice and goodness, but he sees right through it to what it really is all about. And he's coming to judge evil now, a fiery flame to bring forth justice. And many crowns were on his head. We've seen all these beasts and dragons and so forth with all sorts of crowns, various types of crowns, but they're all phony, they're all parodies of the real one. And they're all uh, just trying to be imitations of what God is really like. Here now we come, we see Jesus, and on him many crowns were on his head. We get the hymn, crown him with many crowns, the Lamb upon his throne. There we go. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. So we're going to hear throughout the book of Revelation and even in this passage, we're going to hear all sorts of names of Christ. We already heard faithful and true as a writer. But he does have one name that he reserves only to himself. And that reveals to us that, you know what? God has more to us to show about the character and who Jesus is. And there's some things that we may not know in this age or even in the age to come. He has a name known only to himself. But then it goes on. He wore a robe dipped in blood. It is his own blood. Jesus is a warrior. He is coming to judge with justice. But not before he is the sacrificial lamb. Because you need to understand that. We all need to understand when Jesus comes to judge, he has already given his life as the sacrificial lamb for the life of the world. He has already given countless opportunities. And we're 2,000 years in running since the cross. And we don't know how long it will be until he returns. But people have had thousands of years to respond to his love and his mercy and his kindness and his atoning work of the cross. Will you respond to that? He is a writer coming now with his robe, these royal robes, these crowns, this dipped in blood. He's a king who has laid down his life for people he loves, for sinners, for rebels that he loves. But now that day, of of mercy and opportunity is drawing to a close. And his name on this particular uh, moment is called the Word of God. He is the Word of God. John in, in his gospel says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God and the Word was God. He is the Word of God. He is the living Word of God. He is the incarnate Word of God. He speaks truth. But I think also It's about him bringing promises to us. You know, the Bible opens, we're at the last book of the Bible, but the Bible opens with Genesis. And in Genesis 1 and 2, you get God creating the world, and you get this paradise and this amazing garden that Adam and Eve are living in. And it's just this serene, amazing environment that they're in, and they're walking with God. They have a personal, close friendship and a relationship with their creator, with the living God. And it all seems to be going great. And then Genesis 3 opens, and suddenly there's a serpent, dragon, if you will. He comes into the scene, and he tempts Eve, and she partakes of the one uh, fruit that she's not allowed to, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then she takes that, she gives it to Adam, he partakes. And now suddenly they have experienced evil, Satan's evil, and their own evil by partaking, and, 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 and in the very beginning, Satan asks Eve, did God really say? And he questions the command of God. That's really the essence of his whole tactics is to question the word of God, to throw it into doubt, to, to question his goodness, his justice, his kindness, and his love. But when that, uh, when that happened, and the fall of humanity occurred. There was a promise given right after the fall of, of Adam and Eve. And I want to read it to you. It's in Genesis three, fifteen, 15. And, and God brings all these uh, promises and also uh, pronouncements of curses upon uh, the earth and Satan and, and, and humanity because of sin. But then he makes a promise in Genesis 3.15. To the serpent, he says, Satan, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, offspring being the seed, the descendant, the promised deliverer who will come someday. That is the Messiah. That is the Christ. That is Jesus who will come someday. He will strike your head. He will destroy you. And you will strike his heel. You'll try your best, but he will destroy you. And so there's a promise given in Genesis 3.15 of a deliverer who will one day destroy evil that has happened way back in Genesis. And now the one called the word of God has arrived on the scene. Heaven opens, the rider on the white horse comes and he's going to deal with evil. Once Jesus came uh, with great humility in Bethlehem and uh, in, in, as a shepherd, as the lamb of God, now he comes, a rider on a white horse, and he is going to conquer. You know, I think in American, uh, oftentimes in American Christianity, we have basically two images of Jesus. One image somebody said was Jesus at Christmas. He's the baby, you know, the harmless little, cute little baby born at Bethlehem, very humble, very harmless. And then our other picture of Jesus is kind of the 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 guy with kind of somehow we've we've managed him to get kind of feathered hair, stroke back, and he's kind of cool and he's he's very kind and and he's very loving and and of course Jesus is kind and he is loving, but. Those images are pretty much the only ones we know. Uh, But you know what? The scripture here comes with a different image. It's Jesus riding on a white horse. He's going to make war. He's going to, with justice, judge evil. So he is that too. And this this brings us to a holistic picture of who Jesus Christ really is. It says in verse 14, the armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses. So now coming from heaven are the angel armies of God and probably the people of God as well. And it says they are wearing pure white linen. This this white linen is, is a symbol of purity and of... of, of um, a victory also. It could be that these are, uh, white linen is either the clothing of priests who are coming uh, ready to do the work of, of what Jesus, they're participating in the, the kingdom advance of Jesus as priests, so we've heard all along throughout the uh, book of Revelation, or it, it may be clothing of, of celebration, of festival. They just came from this festival image that we saw last weekend. Now they're coming to uh, join uh, Jesus Christ as he comes on, a, uh, on, on his white horse. They come in their white horses wearing pure white linen. And guys, this is, this is the day when God s- sets the record straight and when God judges the evil and all those who have oppressed us and all those who have mocked the church and all those who have, who have persecuted and pressured and killed and assaulted and, and, and uh, destroyed or attempted to destroy the church of Jesus will all now be dealt with as the rider on his white horse accompanied by his armies on white horses are coming. Again, imagery, symbolism, guys. But you get the image. You get the symbol. And I don't know what the reality is exactly going to be like, but it's going to be this kind of flavor. So this is what's happening here. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. So the sword, we'll learn, is the word of God. It's not a military weapon. It is his word, which is the sharp sword it is often a picture of the uh, word of God in Scripture. And it come, the word comes out of his mouth. And it will be that he will that his only weapon is his word. That's all he needs to destroy all the nations. And when we're talking about the nations here, we're talking about those empires, those uh, ones that have are opposing uh, the movement of Jesus Christ, who have, who have shook their fist at the Creator and at the Lamb of God, who have sought to destroy the people of God, who have been the persistent opponents and enemies of God. That's who he will strike. That's how, who he will judge. And it says he will rule them with an iron rod. This iron rod has strength. It's not tyranny. It's strength. It's stability. It's justice. But it is power. It's an iron rod. It's it's the shepherd's club that is able to, to, to keep this in line and to do what is necessary to bring about justice. That's what he's going to do. You know, I was reading a, a book this week. Um, by a guy named Craig Keister, Revelation and the End of All Things. I just want to share it with you, uh, a few thoughts on this, because in our minds, we have certain images and things that we've learned in our culture with all the fiction works and so forth. And um, here's, uh, he's, Here's what he writes here. I just want to read it to you. Because modern readers often turn to Revelation's final chapters with a mixture of dread and fascination that is fueled by the popular use of Revelation's imagery for the future, future annihilation of civilization. Armageddon, the name that was mentioned back in chapter 16, verse 16, is usually extended to various battle scenes that culminate in the great battle depicted we're looking at right now. Uh, Popular writers on biblical prophecy often use Armageddon as a symbol for more or less World War III, creating a composite picture of a battle linked scripture verses together like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. This is often how it's done. Uh, And so there's there's a puzzle piece from Isaiah that depicts a conflict in Edom, a modern-day Jordan, and it connected to other pieces from Joel, which speak of a battle in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And these in turn link to Zechariah, which focus on Jerusalem, and pieces from Revelation in 14 uh, and 16 and 19. Anyway, they put those all together, and it's frequently... Uh, overlaid with references to current developments in military technology and global politics. Some modern writers assume that when John writes about winged creatures, armies mounted on horses, smoke rising from the bottomless pit, he really refers to squadrons of jet aircraft, missiles bearing nuclear warheads, battalions of tanks, laser weapons, rising clouds of chemical gases, the practice, this practice is so common that images from Revelation are readily used in this way by many who have never even read the book of Revelation itself. In the popular imagination, the road to Armageddon leads to the mushroom cloud that signals nuclear annihilation. Now, Revelation does depict warfare, but of an entirely different sort. And an important discipline in reading Revelation is to ask what they say and what they do not say. And here's there's all sorts of visions of battles in in the book of Revelation but here the most important point is that in the account of the great battle we're looking at in chapter 19 explicitly mentions only one weapon the word of God. That is the sword that comes from the mouth of Jesus, the word of God. The enemies in the first century of the church were trying to destroy the church, persecute the church, kill its leaders, drown the church in its own blood through all the martyrdoms. And to this image is said, well, now the tables have turned. Now Jesus will come to our defense he will come to set the record straight and to right the wrongs and to judge the evil that has been done to his name and to his people. You know, um, there's a story from, uh, from centuries, early centuries uh, in, of the church. And when the army of the Roman emperor, Julian the Apostate, was on the march to Persia, some of the soldiers got hold of a Christian believer to torment and torture him in brutal sport. And after they wearied of it, they looked into his eyes and said to the helpless victim, with infinite scorn in their voices, where now is your carpenter God? The prisoner looked up through his pain, through his blood and agony and said, where now is my carpenter God? He is building a coffin. For your emperor and that is the reality jesus reigns and will judge all those who have opposed him and his church now a lot of believers thought that would come in the first century they were expecting the messiah to set the record straight and to rule and reign in that way but that way that's still awaiting his second coming um but look what it says of Jesus. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. We saw this earlier in chapter 14. The winepress of the wrath of God. And it says here, and he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, which is normally on the robe on the thigh, is where the, uh, the general or the soldier would hold his weapon, his sword, would be there and on that in the place of that sword where that would normally be kept he has his name written and that is king of kings and lord of lords you know throughout the ages people have asked when they see all the evil in the world why doesn't God just destroy the evil We don't know all the reasons for his timing and for his, in his wisdom, why he does what he does. But here is this, why doesn't God just destroy the devil? And the answer, of course, is God will destroy the devil. It's not a question of if, but when. And so here's the first point we come to today. And that is that King Jesus is completely just, in all of his judgment against sin and evil and all the misery and pain that has been brought because of it, he is absolutely, completely just and he is overwhelmingly powerful. There is no power on earth, nowhere in the universe that can overcome and conquer Jesus. He is unconquerable. He cannot be defeated. And now he's coming. And that day is coming for us. That day will arrive in God's perfect hour. No one knows the day nor the hour, but Jesus promises that that will happen. And he will destroy an evil, and he will confront the persecutors, and he will judge the nations. That's a promise. It's a sobering reality. But then uh, you, you think about this. Now now we get a, we've got a picture of the one who is to come in his conquering Uh, Justice, King Jesus. But now we move from who He is, King Jesus, to what the battle looks like. Now, back in chapter 16, verse 16, we got this little statement that the kings assembled at this a place called Armageddon. And um, guys, I want to show you a picture uh, of, of, of this. This is in the plain of Megiddo. Megiddo. Okay. And Bible scholars are, are you know, have a lot of conversations about what exactly and where is Armageddon. Literally, the word Armageddon means Mount Megiddo. The only challenge with Mount Megiddo is that there is no such thing. There is no mountain called Megiddo. There is no mountain uh, in Megiddo. And, and at the time of John's writing uh, in the first century, Megiddo did not even exist as a Community. However, the plain of Megiddo, and there's a small hill there called Atel or Hill of Megiddo, it's only about 200 feet high, so that's not really Mount Megiddo. But in the plain of Megiddo, numerous, numerous biblical battles have been fought. I've been there, and uh, when you look out, when you stand there and you see the the plain of Megiddo before you you feel, I felt like I was kind of in the Super Bowl of, of of battles, I mean this is like the battle place. Napoleon, when he uh, came to this place, uh, much much later than the biblical um, uh, events, uh, he said it's the most perfect place on earth for a battle to occur. And I don't know exactly how it's all going to come down and whether it's referring to an actual physical place or it's more the concept of the ultimate battle that is to come, whether it refers to this geographical location. I don't know. But I'm telling you, when you go there, you get it. It's like, this is a battle place. And, and so I think what chapter 19 now is doing us is, ta- is here is taking that concept of chapter 16 and pulling it into chapter 19, that Armageddon, that kind of final battle. And the, the crazy thing is we have all these ideas of what uh, this battle is going to look like. and It's been popularized in books and, and, um, and movies, countless ones, Christian and non-Christian, right? And what is it actually like? And the, the bowls are poured forth. What, what is this actually all like? Well, let's, let's look um, at what, what the word of God says here. And, and guys, I, I need to tell you ahead of time. Uh, this is pretty sober. Um, you know, there was the marriage supper of the lamb uh, in uh, last weekend we looked at in the first part of chapter 19. Well, now we get to a different supper. And it's, it's pretty uh, sobering. Verse 17, then I saw an angel standing in the sun, messenger of God, high in the sky. And he called out in a loud voice saying to all the birds flying high over at, overhead, come, the vultures, they're, they're circling, come, gather together for the great supper of God. This is the day for a great supper of God. What's What's coming? So that, verse 18, you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of military commanders, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of horses and of their riders, and the flesh of everyone, both free and slave, small and great, all the enemies of God. There's going to be a feast for the vultures. This is very sobering and and extremely violent and also kind of epic imagery. In other words, This isn't going to be a a battle where there's like bloodshed on both sides. This is going to be a very one-sided battle in which the enemies of God will be utterly and totally defeated by the rider on the white horse, Jesus. Get out your knives and forks, vultures, and get ready for the great supper of God because you're going to have a lot of corpses to feast upon. And I, I know that this, you know, tugs at some of our modern day sensibilities, but this is very common warfare language used in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Exactly what is going to happen in the last, last days and how close to realities, actual physical realities have, happened, I don't know. But it's, it's talking about the final defeat of evil and it's not gonna be good for evil. It's gonna be really, really bad for evil to have its day of judgment. Then I saw the beast, remember him? This is the Antichrist. This is the one who opposes Jesus at every turn and seeks to lead the nations astray. We met him way back. The kings of the earth, the, ones, the, those who have, the nations who have opposed and, and went against Christ and his people. And their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the white horse and against his army. And they're all on their white ho- uh, horses. So now this, they, they come together for the epic final battle and, and, and it's kind of, the, I mean, you've seen it in all the movies. I mean, the, the battle lines are drawn, and there's the good guys, and then there's the bad guys. And that, that's what this is, the, the epic battle between good and evil. And, and, you know, we've seen it all in Lord of the Rings and, uh, and many other movies, uh, and you're, you're expecting to be this huge clash and everything goes every which way and it's this long protected thing and it's, it's just, there's a lot of uh, damage done on both sides. That does not happen in this battle at all. In fact, it will be now, we'll see in verse 20, the fastest and strangest battle ever fought. So you have these gigantic armies against the rider on the white horse and his armies, but the beast, it says, was taken prisoner. So the leader... Gets carted off. He's out. And along with it, the false prophet. That was the one who was the propaganda machine, the one who used religion and false teaching to lead people astray. He's out too. As a, He's a prisoner also. Who had performed the signs in its presence. He, the false prophet, deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast. Those who who'd went along with this whole anti-Christian movement. And those who worship its image with these signs. So they're taken off to prison. They're out. And look, both of them were thrown alive, alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So now you have this ultimate judgment place, lake of fire against symbolism, but it's meant to connote something that this is punishment uh, um, that's conscious here. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider of the horse, which is the word of God, uh, uh with just a word of mouth he, uh, his mouth he judges them and they're destroyed and all the birds ate their fill of their flesh this battle we just read is decisive it's overwhelmingly one-sided it happens the the conclusion of the battle happens at the start i mean the battle is over the the moment it begins it's sobering it's frightening but it's also something that gives us a great deal of hope that Jesus will judge evil, that injustice will not reign, that that God will oppose Satan and, and all of those who have rejected Jesus and his ways of kindness and goodness. Ultimately, there will be a day of reckoning. So here's the second point. King Jesus will decisively and permanently defeat evil. Now, we're going to see more in the last uh, three chapters of Revelation 20, 21, and 22 about the ultimate uh, judgment of Satan and then this incredible eternal state that God has planned for us. But, um, but for now, for today, in chapter 19, we see that the Antichrist, the, the false prophet, and all those who follow him are, are dealt with and destroyed and judged. And these images are given to us of a battle that's over as soon as it begins. He will decisively and permanently defeat evil. So guys, as you think about this, what, what are the takeaways here? How, what, what do you take away from all this? I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating, it's sobering, but what are the takeaways? Okay, let's look at them. Let me, I'm gonna give you, I think, six, okay? Number one, Jesus' triumphant return on the last, last day in justice, number one, warns us all people against antagonism to God, to, 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 to try to oppose the living and true God. It warns against complacency about people that really don't care about God and who don't think it, all the Jesus stuff don't matter. They they just ignore it or they're they're not interested. The temptations, it warns all of us against not being pulled into the wrong side of the battle because it's a losing battle if you're, with uh, those opposed to Jesus, and it warns us against deception. Don't be fooled. Don't be deceived by Satan, by false teaching. It, all of this battle imagery, where God judges the evil, and Jesus comes against those who have opposed His people in the church, are all um, are all important warning signs for all people, for us to take seriously, and certainly for those who have rejected the gospel or are not interested or they're complacent or antagonistic or or they're tempted to go a different direction. It's it's a warning, okay? So I'm going to give you just a few um, verses for you to ponder as we look at this first point. Uh, the Word of God, uh, Paul says. The Apostle Paul says, "For Jesus, for God has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man He has appointed, and He proved to everyone, uh, and He proved to everyone uh, who He, he is, uh, that He can do this by raising Him from the dead." We, you know, a lot of people talk about being on the right side of history. You definitely want to be on the right side of history. But those are not judged by contemporary movements and and causes. The right side of history is the right side of the end of history. And you don't want to end up on the wrong side of Jesus. Because ultimately, when you reject him, he gives you what you want. We looked at this earlier. The justice is, I don't want to have anything to do with God. And then finally, God says, okay, we won't have anything to do with me forever. It's a sobering thing. In fact, Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Um, Some people, Peter was talking about this, the Apostle Peter in his letter, 2 Peter, he says, some people, the scoffers, they will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? For from before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. Nothing's changing. He's never coming back, is the idea. But Peter writes, but you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. So guys, I, I just want to, with all seriousness, ask you have, you, have you come to faith in Jesus? Uh, have, you, have you trusted in him? Because there is coming a day when the opportunity uh, to receive his mercy will be done. And you don't want to be on the wrong side of, of history. You don't want to be one who is, is forever left out of the kingdom of Jesus. So, you know, I, I know... In 2022, for a lot of people, uh, the idea of coming judgment is kind of like whatever. You, and you can sit back and, and you can roll your eyes or, you know, look at your watch or check your cell phone or whatever. But I'm telling you, throughout the Old and New Testament, there are sobering teachings on the realities of rejecting the gospel and the eternal consequences of doing so. So I plead with you with a tender heart. God has loved you and He has given His only Son for you. He wants you to receive Him, to turn from Him, to turn from any other way, and turn in hope and love and in just simple repentance and faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Um, These passages are are days to to ponder seriously. Do I know Christ? Have I trusted in Jesus Christ? And it doesn't have to be great faith. It doesn't have to be impressive faith. It could be very weak faith, but it's in a strong, mighty Savior. And if you cross that line and simply come to him in repentance and faith and say, Lord Jesus, forgive my sins. I trust in you. I give my life to you. And I don't want to follow you. He will come into your life, forgive all your sins. And you will never have to ever fear uh, the judgment of God because he will never pour out that judgment on anyone who trusts in him. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So trust in him today. Okay, that's the first one. Second principle is this: uh, the 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 uh, Jesus triumphant return in justice encourages followers of Jesus, uh, believers, uh, when we are discouraged, when we're worried, or when we're weary. You know, life can be so hard and difficult and challenging at times, and like, mommy, make it stop. And you see things in culture, and you think see trends that are happening, or you got your own personal issues and you see evil in the world, or you see temptations coming your way, and it gets discouraging, or or you're worried about the future for your kids or for your grandchildren, whatever, or you're just weary of it all. You're like, when is this evil going to stop? And you're thinking, is it really worth it? And the answer is, yes, it's worth it. Because on the last, last day, Jesus will right all the wrongs and we will have an eternity to enjoy being in his presence. So this short little period of suffering that I'm not making light of the suffering, it is real suffering, but comparatively it's short compared with the eternity that God has promised to us. Um, uh, Paul wrote this to Titus in that letter. He says, we are filled with hope as we wait for the glorious return of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. For, for centuries, since the time of Jesus, um, this return of Jesus has been that blessed hope. It's been that happy hope. It's been that thing that believers has longed for and prayed for. Come, Lord Jesus. And I hope today that you will think more deeply in the coming week and month and year and for the rest of your life about the second coming of Jesus. Because once you begin to have the second coming of Jesus Christ in your mind, the return of the king in your mind. It sets everything else in perspective. And when you forget about the return of Jesus, or when it's obscured or it's in the back, it's in the on the back burner and it's no longer a present daily reality in prayer for you, you can get overwhelmed, worried, discouraged about everyday matters. And yeah, there are real challenges, but you got to keep the hope of Jesus always on the front burner. And the return of Jesus and his promises right there in, right in front of you all the time. Um, uh, thirdly, uh, the third thing that we learn here is that uh, the, the, the Jesus' triumphant return of justice calls us to pray wisely. Um, the apostle Peter, and I'll look at a number of verses he wrote, um, he says, The end of the world is coming soon, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. You know, um, knowing that Jesus is coming back and that we don't know the day nor the hour nor how long we have on this earth calls us to be on our knees, calls us to be in touch with God, calls us to seek him daily. We want to live our lives to the fullest and to the greatest because we don't have forever. So we say, let's stay in close contact with God. And guys, I have said to you over and over again, let us be ones who pray for spiritual renewal in the church and for spiritual revival in our community and across our land and world so that many, many people will come to know Jesus Christ and that we ourselves will walk with him in integrity and in love and in joy all the days of our lives that he gives to us. Fourth takeaway is that Jesus' triumphant return in justice allows us to love deeply and forgive those who've wronged us. You see, he goes on after that verse I just read. He says, most important of all, since the end of all things is near, continue to show deep love for each other. Life's too short to just hold grudges. Life's too short to, to, to be self-centered. Self-centered. Life's too short to think it's all about you. Instead, make life this this incredible opportunity to love the people around you deeply and not to hold grudges but to forgive freely for love covers over a multitude of sins. You see, knowing that Jesus will one day deal with all the sins that have been committed, that he will make right all the evil that's been done to you or to me, that he will set it all straight, Gives me the freedom to be able to forgive people. Gives you that freedom too. Because no longer do you be, have to be the one who needs to bring justice to people. Instead, you trusted a God who says, vengeance is mine, I'll repay. Don't worry, I'll take care of things. It will be just in the end. So that's just something incredibly important to remember. Um, here's another one. Uh, uh, Jesus' triumphant return justice, number five, motivates us to do good works and to share The good news. Yeah, guys, Peter goes on. The end of all things is near. Therefore, welcome people into your lives and don't grumble about it. Literal translation offer hospitality means be, be a someone who loves new people and welcomes them into your life. So have people over for dinner, get to know your neighbors, and don't grumble about how hard it is. Say, hey, I love doing this. Love the people around you. Not only the believers around you. But all the people around you, the days are short. you don't know how long it's so easy to get on a treadmill of just uh you know getting into patterns where we don't welcome people into our lives, where we just go to work and forget about the people around us, and we put our head down and we don't realize the opportunities are around, around us and that time is short, guys, our neighbors, our friends, especially those who don't know jesus they, they don't have you know forever and we want to welcome them into our lives. Share good news with them. Be ones who deliver uh, grace and mercy and kindness and compassion and truth to them and also to share the good news of the gospel with them. And last principle is this. Um, and Jesus' triumphant return in justice moves us to serve serve for the advancement of his kingdom, for the advance of his kingdom. We get after it. Peter says this way, God, at the end of all things is near. God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them, use whatever God's given to you. Gifts, abilities, resources, whatever, to serve one another. To to love the people in your life. To serve the church. To serve one another, the people of God. Do it, he says, with all the strength and energy that God supplies. If you don't do it in his strength, you'll burn out doing it. Because you'll be doing it in your own strength. But do it in his strength then everything you do, if you serve, and maybe you've been sitting on the bench of volunteering in the life of the church, maybe now's the time to get in the game and serve and volunteer and, and make an impact and make a difference. There's certainly lots of opportunities. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ, all glory and power to him forever and ever, amen. That's the cherry on top of the Sunday. That's what makes it all worth it. Because in the end, all the glory goes to Jesus who saved us, who loved us, who will, uh, who will so bless us for all of eternity. A never ending uh, experience of the love and mercy of God. That's what we, he has planned for us. All the glory belongs to him. He deserves it. And everything we can serve, and every way that we can make an effort to make a difference to advance his kingdom is what we're all about. Um guys, I want to a- end today with just a a, a quick uh, story. Um, a friend of mine named Phil Calloway is an author uh, Christian leader in Canada. He talked about a day when he, he and his wife were um in Hawaii actually and um and he just related this unusual happening. He says, back in our room, we were enjoying a lazy breakfast when suddenly the world goes crazier than a cage full of monkeys. At precisely 8.07 a.m., it's a few years back, a a zillion cell phones buzz and a message flashes on screen. Here it is, 8.08, Saturday, January 13th, a few years back, uh, emergency alert, ballistic missile, threat inbound to Hawaii, seek immediate shelter, this is not a drill. He writes, now I'd be a liar if I told you my first thought. is woohoo, bring it on. I have a family, lots of air miles I haven't used. And where is this shelter? Beneath a palm tree in Hawaii? Below, pandemonium, pandemonium breaks loose. People panic, some scream, flee through the streets in Hawaii. It's North Korea, someone yells. It takes a ballistic missile 20 minutes to get here. 11 minutes have already come and gone. With nine minutes to live, Ramona and I descend Nine Flights of Stairs. I'm a little wobbly, a little dazed, a little fearful. A lady, though, is carrying a Bible. I say, that's a good book. She laughs. It's the best, especially this morning. She holds up her phone. Call us delusional, but we stop and talk about heaven, about the hope we found because of God's love. We're in good hands, she says. We all agree, and we hug a complete stranger like we're old friends. With six minutes left of our lives, Ramona and I turn west onto Lures Street toward the Pacific. Colors around you seem brighter when the end is nigh, as if the sun has strewn its drizzling offspring all over the island. A hundred thoughts flood your mind when you have five minutes to live. The kids, is there anything unsaid? No. They know we love them, know where our new address will be, know where the will is. All $62 of it. I wonder if we'll see a missile, I say. Let's watch. Four minutes to live and I'm thinking about the South Korean dictator, North Korean dictator. I haven't met him. Don't know if he can hit a basketball hoop from five feet, let alone pinpoint this tiny island 5,000 miles away. But stranger things have happened. Help, we pray. Three minutes left to live and a man stops us. He's furious at politicians. I tell him we can't put our hope there. Our hope is in God. I'm kind of like the new me. I'm braver than normal. What's he gonna do, kill me, right? With two minutes left, it's important to know that your worldview works. I'm happy to report that Christianity does. I'm a little jittery, but there's a peace I cannot explain for many fear reigns. One lifts a manhole cover and pushes a child below. Tearful goodbyes are said. Underground parking lots are filled. There's no place to hide, someone says, no refuge. And something clicks, a verse learned in childhood. I hold my hand's wife and tell her, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. One minute left to live, and we are laughing. There are the mountains, there's the sea. There's not much else around here. My watch says time's up. I pause. We're still here, I say. Shoot, says Ramona. We are laughing again. Most of her family is in heaven now. There are days she'd love to join them, but today isn't going to be that day. It takes a whopping 38 minutes for authorities to issue a retraction. Someone hit the wrong button. Oops. How prominent is this button? Did they hire a bit of a joker? What if his eyesight wasn't up to par? Maybe he pushed the button thinking it said, go for lunch, when it said, go for launch. It's too early to go for launch. So we continue our walk along Waikiki Beach. It's the emptiest we've seen it, but people are beginning to return. I wanna yell, don't go back to the way you were. I wanna yell, you have one life to live, one story to tell, write it well. Half an hour this beach was crammed with people who are told how to look young, eat right, be healthy, stay buff. We cling to this planet for dear life, forgetting that it might just end a whole lot sooner than we think. Life is transitory. Those who make the most of it have faced the fact that this is not the land of the living. It is the land of the dying. Perhaps we all need a little missile scare once in a while. We'd be a little more aware that we're not here long, a little more prepared to make today count, to live for something that will outlast us. At 10 a.m., another message flashes on my device. You okay? James has been watching the news. Yep, I reply, but believe me, It's been a blast. Father in heaven, we know that ultimate history, the last day of history will not end that way. It will end with a rider on a white horse. The symbolism that we've seen here of ultimate victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one day, all of us who have trusted in you will live in a world where there is no Satan, where there is no evil, where there is no sorrow or pain or death, Lord Jesus, come. Please come. We want to live with you. And in the meantime, for however long you give us, help us to walk in a way that's worthy of the incredible eternal calling that we've received. Help us to be busy about forgiving others, loving others, telling others the good news, and help us to be ones who on the day of your return will be found faithful. That's our prayer. We love you, Lord. And everybody agreed and said, amen. God bless you all and have a great week.